All right. Now we got up and running. Okay. Uh, so this is, uh, these are my three kids right here. It's a little blurry. Uh, I got uh, Ella right there in the middle. She's our oldest. She's 10. I got Hudson here. He's nine years old. And I got Hadley. She's six. But they are standing there in front of something. Does anybody know what that thing is that they're standing next to? Okay, not a chain, not just any chain. What kind of chain? Not a. It is usually for Christmas, but it's it's not specifically Christmas. It's uh, actually I don't know if there's a name. I'm just gonna. So you guys could have said anything. But like, yeah, sure, that's it. Uh, when I when I googled and looked up what they call it, they call it a uh, paper chain countdown. That's what it's called, a, a chain countdown. And you guys, obviously, I heard some of you say for Christmas, so you know what it is. This is one of those things you take where you, you've got all these chains, each representing a day, all these links, and, and each day to count down leading up to, usually it's Christmas or something like that, you tear one of those away. Um, this particular chain is hanging up in our house right now to count down the days until we take our, our, our family to Disney World. Uh, so this was like our big gift to them over Christmas. And they got super... Uh, I almost showed you the video of them like of them discovering that they were going to Disney World. It's pretty epic, but I decided uh, we don't have time. So, uh, so yeah. So my wife decided, you know, it'll be fun. We'll make this little like countdown chain uh, to to hang up there. And so she made this thing. She hung it up. She put it on there. And my daughter Ella, who loves like crafts and stuff like that, thought that was super cool. And uh, and I don't know. Maybe we hadn't done that before, but I don't know what that is. But that's all right. We don't need it anymore. Um, Okay. Um, God, God, we need a new tech guy. Uh, all right, sweet. Um, so anyway, my daughter Ella gets excited. She's like, you know what? I'm going to make one of these for Hadley's birthday coming up so we can count down to Hadley's birthday, um, which is really cool, except for Hadley's birthday is not till like March 29th, right? So she sat in there and made like a 75-link chain um, to count down Hadley's birthday to her. And then she's like, you know what? I'm going to make one of these for my birthday. And her birthday's not till April 21st. So it's like she made like a 100-link chain. She sat in a room all day making this and then came to me with this thing. was like, hey, Dad. Can we hang this up somewhere? And I was like, we don't. So I literally, I have it strung just all the way across her, her wall, hanging off the ceiling, hanging down. And then last I heard, she's working on one for Hudson's birthday, or wants to. Um, his birthday is October 15th. <laughs> so it could, uh, we could, if there's like a paper shortage in Stillwater, you know what's going on. Uh, that there's, uh, we're counting down too much stuff at the Moss household. Um, and, and, and our, our kids are excited about that. Ella loves the idea of the project, but they love the idea of every day going and uh, ripping a piece of paper away and counting down until they get to go to Disney World. Uh, sometimes waiting for something is, is part of the fun. It's part of what makes something great is the anticipation, the eager anticipation, looking forward to it and waiting. When you're waiting for Christmas, when you're waiting for uh, a, a vacation, when you're waiting for the day that you get to reunite with a, a friend or a family member, sometimes the waiting itself is part of the fun. Um, and sometimes um, waiting is, is not fun. Sometimes waiting is everything opposite. Sometimes waiting is uh, hell on earth when you find yourself waiting um, to find out the results of 
some biopsy that you or a loved one just went in for, when you find yourself waiting till you can finally get over or move past some significant loss in your life, uh, someone close to you who passed away, someone who you loved who rejected your love and walked away from that, um, when you find yourself struggling, trapped in anxiety or depression and it feels like you've been under for weeks or months and you don't know when you're going to get to like come up out of that again, sometimes waiting is misery. And sometimes it's this weird blend of both, which is what the Christian life is. Christian life is is in some ways this very intense waiting game that has this mix of joy in it, but also has some misery in it, also has a lot of pain and difficulty in it. That's what our text is going to be on tonight in Romans. But before we jump in, I just want to kind of review um, to, to refresh your memory of where we've been, and for those who haven't been here, kind of where we're uh, where we've been so we can know better where we're going. Uh, one way to view Romans, we talked about this at the very beginning, is to view it um, as a defense of God's righteousness. And when we talk about righteousness, we mean specifically um, His justice, that is, that He does what is right, that He does what is just, and then His faithfulness, that He, that he remains true to who He is and true to, who, uh, to His Word. So like one of the major questions that Romans is dealing with is, does God operate the same way today, after Jesus, as He did in uh, the Old Testament, before Jesus? Or has He switched on us? Has He changed the rules on us? And Paul makes a, a strong defense in the book of Romans that no, He has not changed the rules. It has always been Jesus. The plan has always been Jesus. The plan has always been to save people by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. And so He makes that case in there. Um, and so, uh, one of the ways to view it is to kind of break it down by how God's righteousness is being described or defended, answering this question, can God be trusted? Can we trust Him? So, the very beginning, for those of you guys who were here, you know it was like four weeks of, it was like a, a countdown chain of like misery and death, right? We were just, every day, it was just like, everything sucks, uh, next verse, no really, everything really does suck, and it's just one after the other. After Paul introduces uh, kind of his book and his gospel, he gets into this idea that there is no one in the world who is righteous, and therefore God, because he is righteous, because he is just, because he is true to himself, he will punish sin. He will punish all sin. And, and his judgment and his wrath will be poured out on it because he's not a crooked judge that can be bribed out of changing his mind on things like truth and justice and morality. And then when we finally were able to get to 321, which is this huge swing, 321 into 26, um, and then on the way through the, the rest of chapter 4, we see God's righteousness in saving people through Jesus. So everyone stands condemned because of their sin is the first few chapters. And then this, everyone has access to come back to God, to be saved through faith in Jesus. And what he shows in this is, like we said, that God is righteous in this, that he is true to himself, that this is true to his plan from the beginning. And then we've been in the last several weeks as we closed out the fall semester, God's righteousness in giving new life, that he remains faithful, that his goal was not just to save you so that one day you can go to heaven and, and we're all kind of done, but that he is actually at work in the lives of those people who he saved, changing them and giving them a brand new life. So we came and we were in Romans 8. We're, we're in the middle of Romans 8 right now. What some people um, consider to be like the greatest chapter in the Bible. 
I, I love Romans. I've got a lot of passages I like. Romans 8 isn't, it's one of my top, but it's, it's up there. It's really good. And a number of people would say this is like kind of center point of the scripture. So we're in the middle of it. And in Romans 8, he's been showing that this new life that we have is spirit driven. It's one of assurance and confidence and endurance that we can have and freedom from sin and fear. And he says in, in chapter 8 that all of this is made possible because of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to read the last few verses that we finished with in December. The last few verses that we finished with in Romans that will lead us in our text today. And as we do that, Chase, I want to have you come up here for a second, man. Um, Chase is actually going to recite our text for us. Some of you guys have been working memorized Romans 8. And so we're going to have uh, Chase speak that text to you. But before, we, before he does, I want to read this so you can hear the context and how it flows together. These were the last verses we read. Romans 8. Uh, starting in verse 15, um, actually I'll go 14. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Here it is. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And that thought right there, suffering in order to be glorified, is what leads Paul into this next section that we have right now. Take it away, Chase. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, brother. That was wonderful, man. I appreciate it very much. Um, so this one commentator says that the theme of that passage is our future glory. Actually, I don't know if you noticed. The very first verse opens up with that idea 
Okay, I, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us or to us. Um, and then it closes with that. That's the very last word there. Um, that those he justified, he also glorified. So front and back, beginning and end, is glory. And then in between, though, Paul makes these three little points about it. The first is this, that God's glory, or the glory of people and creation, um, is the climax of God's plan. Okay? The climax. It's what everything is headed for. Um, our future glory with Christ. Um, second, though, um, it's not here yet, so we must patiently endure. And then the third thing is this, that it is God who provides what we need to endure. Those are the three things we'll see as we walk through this text a little bit. Let's look at verse 18. I'm in that actually CSB tonight just because this is what I've been reading it in a lot recently. Um, it's similar to the ESV. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. What does Paul mean when he says the sufferings of this present time? First, and, and this is usually, this is kind of the primary definition of suffering when we read about it in the New Testament. It is the specific hardships that we would face because we are Christians. Uh, persecution or animosity, or uh, strained relationships, or insults, those kinds of things. And, and the first century Christians um, were always aware of this. This was an ever-present reality for them. Many of them lost their status in their towns. Many of them lost their place in their families or their homes. Many of them lost loved ones who were killed because of their faith or imprisoned because of their faith. And this is always there. Um, but the second thing that he talks about, um, is, or, or the second kind of suffering that there would be is uh, just the basic suffering of humanity. As you read through the context, this is a suffering of living in a fallen creation. That is disease that comes on us. That is natural disasters. That is accidents. That is death that we will all one day experience if the Lord does not come beforehand or that we all experience through the, the death and loss of loved ones. Now that first one, most of us have not experienced very much. We don't have to work with that. And so sometimes we're unable to catch the full weight of the beauty of a chapter like this. Most of us in here have never been persecuted for our faith. But, but some of us in this room have experienced hardships that is specifically connected to your following Jesus. Some of you have um, been rejected by friends because of your choice to follow Jesus and not do what they want to do. Some of you have a, a severing or at least a tension, a strain in your relationship with a parent or a sibling that you love, but there will never quite be that full connection that you long for because your decision to follow Jesus has placed a little bit of separation between you and them. But, but all of us know what it is to, to experience some level of suffering in a fallen world. All of us are going through those things today. I, I just heard this morning about a, a man by the name of Chris who helped Sunnybrook as we were, um, he was a consultant, as we were considering how to, to add on this children's wing. This is what he does for his job. He helps churches work through the best way to kind of build that will benefit them and that kind of stuff. Um, Chris had a young son who uh, was born with Down syndrome. Uh, and, and he had this son in his home for 10 or 11 years. Uh, several months ago, towards, towards like fall of last year, his son was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, and... and 
it was kind of a hard-fought battle, and then things seemed, seemed to kind of turn a little bit um, until all of a sudden something switched in December, and he just plummeted, and, and his uh, son, I think yesterday was one month since his son had died. And uh, he had just posted on Facebook about how he's trying to get used to this idea of sitting at the dinner table with an empty spot every night still after a month. They're sitting in church um, with an empty spot next to him in his pew, not being woken up every day by his son who used to come and jump in the bed with he and his wife and those kinds of things. This is the kind of suffering that living in a fallen world causes people to experience. And it's not right. It doesn't feel right to us. And it's hard to figure out what that is. Paul says here in this verse, trust me, at the end of it all, when you weigh it on a scale, if you were to put these things, all the suffering you ever experienced in this life and all the glory you're going to experience in eternity, it will far outweigh. It will not even compare. No matter how hard your suffering is, no matter how difficult it is, it will not be worth comparing with the glory, with the beauty that you will enjoy and you will live in on the other side of eternity. But he's not naive about how hard this life is. Paul, of all people, knows what suffering is. This is a man who had been beaten repeatedly. This is a man who had found himself trapped in shipwrecks. This is a man who had been, uh, tried to have been uh, stoned to death at one point by people. This is a man who, who people turned on him, who loved ones hated him. He knew how hard this life was. And so he says, the future glory is going to be amazing, but we're not there yet. And so until then, we wait. And the question is, how? How do we wait in a world where little boys with Down syndrome leave their family too soon? How do we wait in a world where following Jesus might cost us relationships with people that we love? How do we wait in a world where natural disaster comes in, tornadoes or whatever come in and just take people's houses away, take people's livelihoods away, take people's lives away? How do we wait well in the meantime? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Normally when we teach this, um, we spend about half and half, 50-50 on the first half of the text and then, uh, and then the same amount on the second half. Or if anything, we spend more time on the second half of the text, or second half of the lesson. Tonight we're going to spend a little bit more time up front um, because it's just a big text with a lot in it. And then we'll do a little bit shorter towards the end. Um, but I want to walk through these things uh, that are told in here. Here's what it says in verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says we wait, but we're not the only ones waiting. It says creation itself is waiting. Now this is kind of an interesting, this, this text gives us some big theology that we don't actually find um, anywhere else in the scriptures. This kind of explains some stuff that's not said uh, anywhere else. The idea is that when God created the universe, he made human beings as kind of the pinnacle of his creation, as his image bears. And a part of that job is that we are to rule over creation in his place, that, that on his behalf we are to be the head of creation. Uh, we were made to care for it and cultivate it, and it was made to serve and sustain us. And so when that happened, creation's fate, 
um, plant life, animal life, uh, the stars, the moon, the sun, everything around us, um, its fate became tied up in our fate. Uh, kind of like a coach and a team, a football team, basketball team. Um, if that coach uh, is bad, if things aren't going well for him, things are not going to go well for the coach. Or like a director and a movie, the story, the movie will not play out well if the director is not well. But if there's a good director, then the movie will go well. Those two things are intimately tied up. And Paul actually uses this similar language for human beings and creation in here to kind of show how they're tied together. And so what, what Paul's getting at is this, that um, when we turned against God, who is our loving master, who cares over us and that we were supposed to serve, when we turned against him, creation was cursed by God and it turned on us. And now we find that instead of being our friend, instead of being our uh, servant, um, creation is often our antagonist. Um, that we find that it is against us, that it cause, causes frustration sometimes as we try to work it and use it for our good, that we find like things like natural disasters come, that wild animals and things become things that we should fear rather than know and be in communion with. It has been subjected to futility and decay, this constant state of breakdown and entropy. And then Paul kind of personifies it in this text. And he says that all creation, because of that, eagerly waits. Now, this is an interesting word, and you'll see it several times in this. Every time you see the word waits in here, it's not just waits. In the CSB, it says eagerly waits. Um, and the idea is this is a compound word in the Greek. These two words that come together to mean crane the neck. So it's literally this idea of so, so looking forward to something, so longing for it to be that you're like up on your tiptoes trying to get a glimpse of it out in the future. That's, that's what it's describing here, this craning the neck to be able to see what might be coming, the hope that may be coming. It says that this is what creation does. And, and then it says also that it groans as in labor pains, these terrible pains that we know one day will lead to joy, one day will lead to something right. And then Paul says, it's not just creation, we do too. We eagerly wait, those who have the Spirit eagerly wait for um, the redemption of our bodies, he says, for our adoption for the day when this broken down version of me, this, this version of me that is constantly um, going from life towards death, every day one step closer to death, when that will be renewed and I will be made into what I was supposed to be and all of us will. And what Paul is saying is when that happens actually, it's not just going to be us. The creation that we're supposed to head up will all be made new again, will all be renewed. I don't know if you know this. When Jesus comes back, you will not go to heaven. don't know if you know that or not. That's not the way it's described. When Jesus comes back, you will live in the new heavens and new earth. That the, the earth we live in now, the universe we occupy now, will be made new, will be redeemed, will be what it was always intended to be, as you will be what you were always intended to be. We will live here the way that it was meant to be, and somehow that will be combined with heaven. These two things will come together as they ought to be. Um, here's what he says in verses 24 and 25. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? 
Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. There's that word again. We crane our necks. We stand on tiptoe looking for it. So how do we wait well in the middle of a difficult and fallen world? The first answer is this. We do it by knowing the hope of salvation. Paul says, in this hope, the hope that we will be uh, redeemed in our bodies, that we will experience our full adoption. We've already been adopted, he says, but we'll get to experience the fullness of that as God's children in his presence, knowing him all the time. We wait for that. And that hope gives us the ability to continue on in the middle of a difficult world. This hope that this is not all there is for us, that we won't always succumb to weakness or sickness or death, that we won't always struggle with sin, will be made new. Uh, I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He says that Christians live in the hope that because of Christ, one day, entropy will no longer have the last word. Entropy will no longer have the last word. Uh, There's a second way that we are able to endure patiently during this time, and that's in the next few verses, 26 through 28. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings, and He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is here that the second way that we are able to endure is because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now certainly the Holy Spirit helps us in a number of ways, but there's a specific here that he points to that is kind of interesting. Um, If I were to ask you right now, I don't know if you'll be able to think of it, I were to ask you like top five things, we'll just say top three things you wish you were better in in your Christian life. Top three things you wish were different about you, you wish you could grow in, that uh, that you're frustrated by in your Christian life, you could be better at. Just think about that for a second. What would those be? Here's my guess. I don't know. My guess is that for a majority of you in there, somewhere on that list, top three, is I wish I prayed better. I wish I prayed more. I wish I knew how to pray. And again, it's just a guess, but that comes from a ton of conversations with a ton of people over the course of my life, just talking with one of my friends yesterday who just said, I don't know how to pray. I should be better at this than I am. I want to be better at this. This is a struggle for a lot of people. And for many of us, the issue is that we don't even know. I don't know if you feel this. When you get together or when you sit down and you try to pray, you sit down at your bed, you kneel there or you lay in bed or you sit at your table and you try to think and and you just sit there for a second and you go, "I I don't even know what to say. I just go into the same kind of patterns of stuff that I've always said. This is a reality for a lot of us. In some ways, this is something that we can and should grow in. We as believers ought to be able to grow in our ability to pray and to know what to pray and and, and to be able to do better in those things. But in other ways, this is actually a fundamental part of our human weakness. Because my mind is finite, I will never know what is the best thing to pray for. I will never know the exact needs of all my friends and all my family members. I will never know the exact best outcome in any situation. So how can I pray for that exactly? That's part of what it is to be uh, human. But the good news is that God is not surprised by this and He's got it covered. says this, that the Holy Spirit, when we go to God and you sit there at the foot of your bed and you go, I, I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know how to pray about this thing. The Holy Spirit goes, I do. And the Holy Spirit is actually praying on your behalf. 
with unspoken groanings, it says, communicating to him. There's this uh, lady, those of you who go to Sunnybrook, you got to know her. How many of you guys know who Miss Genevieve is? Okay. Miss Genevieve, she's this lady who sits on this little stool in the main hallway, says hi to everybody. She's somewhere like 180 years old, and she is the nicest, sweetest, most amazing lady in the world. Um, if you have not, if you go to Sunnybrook and if you have not stopped to say hi and introduce yourself to Miss Genevieve, you need to do that. One of my favorite things about Miss Genevieve is that she prays like nobody's business prays all the time. She's one of those persons that always says these things. I will pray about that for you. And when, you, when she says that, like you know that, that sometime in the next hour your name is going to be brought before the throne room of God because she is going to be there. And I love whenever I need something, I love going to Miss Genevieve and saying, can you please pray for me? Because I know that like because of what Jesus has done, we all have the same access to God. It just sometimes feels like Miss Genevieve has like VIP privileges or something <laughs> like that. Like she's got like backstage passes or something, you know? Like she's got this ability to be able to speak to him and come to she's so familiar with him. How much more though when that person that is praying on me my behalf is not just this sweet old lady but is the third member of the Trinity himself. And God says, "No this. He does. He does for you." That's not an excuse for you to not it just means that even in your weakness, you can know that God is talking to God about what you need, which is a pretty amazing thought. Now, these final couple of verses, these are big ones. We have one of the most famous verses and one of the most controversial verses in the entire book of Romans right next to each other. 28, 29, 30 says this, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Here is the third thing that Paul says enables us to press through, no matter how difficult life is, and that is trust in God's providence. Providence is like a way of saying his sovereign goodness, his ability to work things out, and his, his, his desire to do it for your good, his sovereign ability to make all those things happen. That is a huge verse, verse 28 huge verse, has been incredibly encouraging to many Christians over the years. It is also one that I believe is often misunderstood. And we're going to spend the second half of our time just talking about actually what that verse does not mean um, in just a little bit. But I want to jump ahead real quick to these other ones, verses 29 and 30. Um, as I said, if 28 is one of the most famous, 29 might be one of the most controversial verses in there. Um, this idea says that those that God foreknew, He also predestined. Um, this has been, for the last like 500 years, one of the major theological debates uh, uh, in Christianity about salvation. How does it work? And, and this question, sometimes I may get asked, do you believe in predestination? Uh, the answer is, I think I have to. Uh, like it says it in the Bible, so I don't know how to get around it. Okay? It's, it's in there. Um, the question is, what does Paul mean when he says that some people are predestined? When he says that people are. Let me, let me correct that. When he says that people are predestined. There are basically three different options for how we can understand a verse like this. And, and the first is, and some of you guys may be fully aware of how this, this whole debate, and some of you guys may have no idea, and this may be news to you. Um, 
the first, uh, the first kind of opinion or belief on this is that when, when Paul says he predestined, it says it means that he unconditionally chose before creation who would be saved and who would not. So before everything began, before time began, before the Garden of Eden, before all of that, God had in his mind those who he was going to save and bring with him into eternity and those that he was not. And so he went down and he said, Jared is in. Caleb is not. Sorry, bro. Uh, Zach is in. Casey is in. Sweet, you made it. Alyssa is not. Sorry, you didn't make it. Um, this idea, and I, I don't mean to even speak about that lightly, but that's, that's kind of the idea that God has predestined, predetermined those beforehand who will be His, and that He will make that happen. If He has determined that you are going to be saved, He will save you. Those He has predestined, He will call, and then He will justify, and then He will glorify. Um, this, is the idea, this is known as like the Calvinist idea, or, or actually the kind of technical term is unconditional election. That he elected, he chose beforehand, um, with be, not based on any conditions, who would and would not be saved. Uh, the second idea is this, that God predestined those, what does Paul say here in this text? That those he what he predestined? That those he foreknew. And so the idea here is that actually, yes, God did determine beforehand who would be saved, but he did that based on his knowledge, because God's not bound by time. He's not stuck in time. He sees all things and all people in all places at all times, because he can be in the past and the present and the future. And so he knew those who would love him, as Romans 8 says, Romans 8, 28. He knew those who would love him. He knew those who would, when encountered with the gospel, would repent and believe in the gospel, trusting Jesus to take away from their sins. And so he looked down and he said, Jared, I know him. He's going to do that. Caleb, yes, he's in. He's, he, I know he's going to do that. Zach, I know they're going to do it. And so I determine now that they are mine because I already know what's going to happen. And so in this case, what's actually happening is, yes, God is determining, but people still have free will. In, in the first um, first kind of opinion there, the first stance, is that we do not have free will in this. God has already determined whether you're going to be saved or not. Hopefully you're in. If not, too bad. Okay. Um, but uh, in, the, in the second one, it believes that actually we have a free will, and God knew that based on our free choice, what we would choose, and then he marked us as his own. The third option goes like this, that God did not predestine specific people, that he predestined instead a plan and a church. He predestined a, a people, like a whole people, a group of people that he would call his church or the new Israel. So he did not predetermine what specific people would be in there. Um, it's kind of like saying this, um, that we have predetermined that everyone who comes to the winter retreat and stays until the end this weekend will receive a $100 gift card to Chick-fil-A. Okay? We didn't really do that, so don't get excited. Okay? Um, but... We determine everyone who comes and stays till the end gets it. Now, we're not, I'm not predetermining who's going to be there. I'm not saying Jared is in and Caleb is in and all those things. All I'm saying is that everyone who's in, this is my predetermined plan and I will make sure it happens, but it's up to you whether you're going to be in on that. And that's the idea. Um, we actually, I, I got to think through this, but I think this is true. We never see that word predestined applied to individuals. Um, it's always used in like a plural, it uses the plural Greek word for you in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1 where this is, uh, idea is talked about. And here it says those. And so we never quite see that. And so uh, I land a little bit more towards three. 
uh, I, I, I tend to think three, um, that, that we have the choice in this matter simply because so many other places in Romans, our choice is put into play. Repent, that we trust in these things, that we believe in Jesus, and those who reject it will be judged. And so I tend to land towards this idea. I'm, uh, I can see, actually, I could get behind option two. That makes sense to me as well. There may be a blending of those two ideas there. I'm not exactly sure. And I can say this. Um, I don't think that option one is crazy. Um, my, most of my favorite writers and preachers believe option one, actually would consider themselves Calvinists and believe that we don't have free will in this. Um, and I don't think they're crazy for that, even if I don't agree. Now, we, we might dig into a little bit more of this when we get into Romans 9. That's when this gets really crazy. Um, but we'll talk a little bit more about that for now. But for, for now, I just want to say this. Don't let the theological debates take away from the beauty of this truth, that God is committed to finishing what He started in you. That God is at work in you from beginning to end. Those He foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. Come to me, come to me. And those He called, He also justified. He made you right with Jesus. And those He justified, it says it in past tense. Do you notice that? He also glorified. Why? Glory is not coming until later. Um, I think because Paul is saying it's as good as done. He's set on it. Okay? And God is committed to seeing those things through with you. Um, He's at work so that one day you will be made new with a redeemed, glorified body in a redeemed, glorified creation. And knowing His providence and His faithfulness to us enables us to be faithful to Him. We'll talk about this in just a minute. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we unpack Romans uh, 8.28 for a minute. But I want to give you a chance to stretch your legs. So hop up and then we got another announcement for you. <clears throat> okay, here's what I want to do. Like I said, we won't take long. I, I want to take 10-15 minutes to, to talk through Romans 8.28, this very important verse, and talk about, first of all, what it does not mean and then talk a little bit about what it does mean. So we'll try to move quickly. Let me read it to you real quick. Uh, it says this once again, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to ha- His purposes. As I said, this has been a profound encouragement to a lot of people. This has been a verse that has meant a lot to me. Um, and and uh, I'm so grateful for what it's meant to me, but we also need to make sure that we're clear on what it says and what it does not say, because if you misunderstand it, it can actually cause damage. It can also be, it can, it can end up being discouraging or destructive uh, to a person's faith. And I, I don't mean to like scare you with that. I, I just mean um, misapplying this can, can have some consequences. So let me tell you real quick four things that Romans 8.28 does not say. If you start removing words or put words out of order or those kinds of things, it can mess it up. So here's, the, here's what Romans 8.28 does not say or mean. That God causes all things to happen. That God causes all things. That some people believe this. That God causes every event and every circumstance and every situation that ever takes place in your life. That God made it happen. Uh, John Calvin, who I mentioned earlier from where we get that term, Calvinist theology. He was a famous uh, theologian in the 
1500s Swiss reformer. Um, he tells this, he uses this illustration about a merchant who walks out one day. He's traveling from one town to town, and so he's walking through this wooded area, and he accidentally takes a wrong turn, and he goes down the wrong path, and that takes him deep into the woods, into this area where this den this, uh, of thieves, this band of thieves is, is there, and he stumbles into their camp, and they see him and murder him and take all his stuff so they can have all his stuff. And he says this, some would see that as like a bad chance. Some would see that as some unfortunate accident. But Calvin says, no, even that is the very act of God. God caused that man to walk down that path so that he would die and get his stuff stolen. God is behind everything. We actually have kind of a version that I don't think people think when they say it, but it actually sounds like this. Have you ever heard someone say, everything happens for a reason? No, where everything happens for a reason. That's what we're saying is that everything that has happened, that there was, and some people who aren't Christians, they just mean fate or whatever caused it to happen. But, but from a Christian perspective, what we mean by that is God caused it. And I don't believe that that is what this says. Some things just happen. This says God causes all things to work together. He doesn't say God causes all things to happen. Um, some things, I believe, just happen. Natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes might be God. Hear me, I'm not, I am not against. We see some things in the scriptures where God uses weather and natural disasters to accomplish what he wants. And so I'm not against that happening. I'm just saying I don't know that all of it happens. I think sometimes those are just the natural result of living in a fallen world when tragedy comes. Um, same with disease. When someone in your family or you gets sick, when someone dies unexpectedly, again, I'm, I'm not against. God has every right to do what He wants, and I believe that God sometimes does those things. I do not believe that God causes every death um, right when it happens. I don't believe that God causes every disease or sickness. There are Christians who disagree with me on that. And so, I, and, and that's okay, but, but I don't, that's not what Romans 8.28 is saying. So if they want to say that God caught, that's fine, but they just got to go to another text because Romans 8.28 is not saying that. Um, financial ruin, when you get, uh, when if someone loses all their money, they lose their job. That might be God, or it might be the result of your own foolishness, or the result of another person's foolishness, or bad planning. You have a financial planner who gives you a bad call, or the market just crashes unexpectedly. Someone's sinful actions against you. Someone wrongs you or hurts you. Let me say this, that is not God. I'm not a, I don't think I can even say might be. Uh, James 1, verses 13 through 14 says this, Whenever you are facing a trial, let, the, let that person not say, God is tempting me. Because God uh, cannot be tempted by anything, nor does He tempt anyone. But instead, temptation takes place when someone, enticed by their own evil desires, is lured away into sin. That's what James says. And so, some of you in here, just be real for a second, have had... Um, unspeakable things done to you. I've had people sin against you in some of the worst ways possible. And you've wrestled with how a good God could do something like that in this world. I, I do not believe, according to the scriptures, that God causes any person to sin. That's what James 1 says. And so therefore, when that was done to you, God did not do it and he grieved over it. This is connected to this second thing that Romans 8.28 does not mean. It does not mean that all things happen to us are all things that happen to us are in themselves good. Okay? 
Um, it's not, he's not saying everything that happens to you is ultimately a good thing. If God is, so if you believe the first thing, that God is behind all things, then that would mean that ultimately all the things that are happening to you are good. Even when disaster strikes, even when someone sins against you, ultimately it looks like a bad thing to you from your limited human perspective, but really it's a good thing, including, like I say, natural disasters or car accidents, sins against us. Listen, some things truly are just bad. They're just wicked and they're sinful and they're not good and there's nothing good about them. When someone does, when someone wrongs you or hurts you in some terrible way, when a car accident strikes and people are lost, there's nothing good about those things. Uh, I mentioned to you Chris and his son who just died. I don't believe that that's like, that's good. If you, if you really think about it the right way, Chris, if you'll just kind of change your paradigm, that's that, ultimately I bet that's a good thing. I don't, I don't know that that's true. The promise is not that everything is good, but that in His sovereignty, God can take even the darkest things, even the lowest moments, and use them for our good. So that that terrible thing that was done to you, that, that God did not cause that, but God is strong enough and good enough to take even that awful, horrible thing that you went through, that terrible thing that someone did to you, the tragedy that you've dealt with, and use that for your good. Number three, Romans 8.28 does not say that all things work together if we love Him enough. That's what some people read this. It says that all things work together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. And some read that as those who truly, like if you love Him enough, that when you love God, if you love Him well, and if you have strong enough faith in Him, if you really do trust Him, and if you really are obedient, if you're a good enough Christian, then, um, then everything is going to work out for you, that God will bless you and cause things to work together for your good. And if things are not working out for your good, it means obviously that, that maybe you don't love Him enough. Or maybe you don't have enough faith if there's sickness in your life and you're not being healed from it. If, if, you're, if you're not prospering or whatever, some might even go so far to say, if you're not prospering financially, well if, well, if you had more faith, then things would work out. If you had more trust, if you loved God more, then those things would come together because God works all things together for those who love them uh, or love Him. Um, but of course, this would mean that the Apostle Paul did not love God very much. Because things did not always go well for Paul. Things often went really poorly for Paul. But we know that that's not true. And so when he says that all things work together for those who love him, that's just Paul's way of saying those who belong to Jesus. Those who are Christians. To be a Christian is to love God, is to love Jesus. So those who are a part of his family. Number four. Romans 8.28 does not mean this. That the good that comes to us will be physical or material or comfortable. Many people take it this way. So, hey, I mean, I'm really bummed that you didn't get that internship that you were going for, that you didn't get that job that you entered for, but don't worry about it. Um, God has one better for you later. Or you go through the, the frustration of uh, a fiancé, not just the frustration, but the, the pain of a fiancé dumping you, and you have to go, no, no, that's okay, though. That means that God has something better for me. He's going to work this together for my good. God has a hotter fiancé for me in the future. Um, no, that's, that's not what this is getting at. That's not what he's talking about here. Again, this does not match up with Paul's life. When something goes wrong for Paul, it doesn't mean that something gets awesome after that. 
It's like, hey, he goes through a shipwreck. That's okay, Paul. Something better's coming. Um, you're about to get bitten by a poisonous snake, right? Um, so it, like, it doesn't, it doesn't always work that way. And so, don't think. And this is where a lot of people, I think, go off is, is they believe that what it means is God is um, committed to making things work well for me and work easy for me and and bless me physically. When God closes a door, He what? Opens a window. Opens a window. Not always. Sometimes when God closes a door, he's about to throw you face first through a wall, okay? Um, uh, sometimes he might be squeezing you through the keyhole or something like that, okay? I don't know that, but, but I, I know that God is committed to your good. So then what does Romans eight twenty eight mean? What does it mean that he works all things together for our good? Well, the key to this verse is the key to every other verse in all of Scripture that you will ever read. We say this a lot. Read it in context. What does the context say? What does the passage So let's read it and the very next verse together. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This is the good. This is the ultimate good for you, is that God will use everything to bring you into the image of Jesus, to make you more like Him. And if, for whatever reason, when you listen to that, there's something inside of you that that's kind of a letdown, ah, I was really hoping it meant like a better job or hotter fiancé. That just means that you don't understand how amazing a truth that is. This is what you were made for. This is the whole reason you exist, is to bear the image of God. That's where everything is, that's that's your design, that's your purpose. And in Christ Jesus, who is the true image of God, you are being remade into His image by the Holy Spirit, by everything that has happened in your life, and you are finally becoming who you were always meant to be. And this is the beautiful truth, that there is nothing in your world that God cannot use to accomplish that. There is not one thing that will ever happen to you that he does not have the ability to redeem and put back together. This is what Michael DeFazio likes to say. Stop saying everything happens for a reason. Start saying anything can be redeemed. That's the truth of Romans 8.28. Anything can be redeemed. Here's the beautiful news for you if you are a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus. It is that your pain is never wasted. God works everything, your highest highs and your lowest lows and your deepest failures and your moments of your greatest regret and the terrible things that have happened in your life and the wonderful successes you've had, God has the ability in His sovereignty in a way that you may not even understand or see it all come together in this lifetime. You may not even understand it or see how it works until we're on the other side of eternity, but God has the ability to take every one of those little moments and every one of those things, good and bad, and work it together for your good. This is profoundly comforting for me. It's profoundly comforting for me as I strive and struggle ahead to try and do what is right and I feel like I stumble and fail. Or, or when things are hard for me to know that no matter how hard things may be, no matter how good or whatever things may be, that God is at work. That none of it is wasted. Not a moment of it is wasted, and he uses those things in your life. This is why we can wait with eager anticipation and with great endurance and patience. Because we know that this is not all there is. 
because the Spirit helps us even when we are weak and because we can trust in God's good providence to use everything we have to take us one step closer towards His ultimate goal, which is to glorify us in the image of Jesus. That's what we're longing for. Let me pray and we'll be done. Dear God, I thank you for this truth and I pray that you would make it real to us. I pray that you would encourage us with these things, that you are always at work for our good and that we would love that good because it is the best thing ever to be made like Jesus. pray that you would do that and that you would give comfort and encouragement and strength to your people tonight through that. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.